When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that? Encrypted disks and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code JavaScriptJabber2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is JavaScriptJabber2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Alyssa Nichol. Hey, hey. Ward Bell. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're talking to Sahil Malik. Hello, everyone. Uh, now, do you want to just give a brief introduction, who you are, what you're, you know, what people know you for, that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, other than bad jokes, I think probably my best introduction is that I'm a developer. Uh, you know, I've been in the Microsoft space heavily for many, many years, uh, but also in the Angular and the general cross-platform space. I think you can follow me on at Sahil Malik and uh, just Google for me, I guess. Awesome. So the way I know Sahil is, um, is through Code Magazine, where he has been writing for many, many, many years. And always his articles are ones that I turn to early when I crack open a code magazine because he writes about interesting things and he writes well about them. So I'm just going to give you that plug. Thank you, Mark. Awesome. I have a funny story about Code Magazine. I went to NGConf and I got a copy of Code Magazine. I think it was in the swag bag. And then I went to um, Microsoft Build and I got the same issue <laughs> in a different swag bag. I was like, oh, okay. But yeah. Yeah. Funny enough. It's, it's a good magazine. I think it's very well balanced. The articles cover a lot of different aspects. And it's not like trying to sell you one vendor's products. Right. So I, I really like it. Yeah. And it, and it takes the time to do in-depth articles. Um, uh, so you really, and you, it's very code centric. So um, yeah, it's, it's stuff, not fluff, I, I find. We have some articles coming on AI and cognitive services in there. So nice, very nice. I always joke with my kids that my intelligences are all artificial. But anyway, enough of the dad jokes. Let, let's talk about Angular for Microsoft developers. Now, you know, you you suggested this title, um, and I, I, I'm kind of curious when you talk about a Microsoft developer, what do you mean? So I think, you know, there, uh, Microsoft developers are of their own skew. They're, they're somewhat different from, you know, people that have been in the open source world a lot. And that's primarily because Microsoft has been changing rapidly over the last few years. So as you know, you know, when Steve Ballmer was uh, heading the ship, Microsoft was very, uh, you know, protect Windows and no open source and we hate Linux and all that. And today, just a few years later, they're bragging about Azure is 20% Linux, and they are embracing open source and so on and so forth, uh, which is great. I think what Microsoft is doing is great. 
but the challenge it creates for the conventional developer that has dedicated their life to things like Visual Studio and C Sharp is that they need to ramp up on this whole new tool set and this new way of learning. So, you know, we were used to things like Visual Source Safe followed by TFS, and suddenly you hit us with GitHub. Uh, and, you know, the whole uh, distributed team working. Uh, so I have lots of you know, interesting anecdotes. For instance, a company that prides itself in productivity and all that uh, does most of its hiring in Redmond. And now they're changing their culture where they're, you know, more adept to working remotely. Uh, and, you know, they, it's, a, it's a change both for Microsoft and certainly a change for people that have been in that ecosystem. Yeah, I think I think I have some idea of this. So about three years ago, my friends Carl and Richard from .NET Rocks reached out about um, having some podcasters actually show up to Microsoft Build and do podcast interviews. And you know they lined us up with some really terrific folks. Uh, we talked to Rom Worm, Rod. I can't even talk anymore. I just give up. <laughs> Rob Wormald. Rob Wormald, that guy. Um, okay. Yeah, and it was funny because we had had him on. Um, JavaScript Jabber to talk about Angular like two weeks before build. But we also talked, got to talk to Anders Heilsberg um, about TypeScript. And we talked to some folks about Visual Studio Code and Chakra Core. Mm -hmm. And anyway, it was all of this stuff that they're collaborating with that was all open source stuff. And, you know, it just kind of illustrates that. Most of the folks that I talked to that were attendees, because I talked to the attendees because I wanted to get a flavor for who was there. And yeah, I, I got kind of the, well, I've been doing the .NET thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we build these things in these ways and use these tools. And yes. um, I was at Build a couple of weeks ago, and it's becoming a lot less that way, even in the developer community. I mean, there are still most of the developers there are still the, you know, the, the kind of people you described. But there were more people there who were interested in the kind of technology that Microsoft is making freely available. And even .NET Core is freely available. I mean, the, kind of their core development platform is out there open source. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of a cool transition to have watched. Indeed. And, you know, typically we would write, uh, you know, we would fire up this really heavy duty IDE called Visual Studio. Uh, and people were very used to thinking and say MVC, MVVM. Uh, mm -hmm. So in some ways, it was good that you had a recipe to start with and there wasn't a lot of doubting each other. So I, as a Microsoft developer, when I went from one organization to another, the tool set was very familiar. Oh, yeah. The thinking was very familiar. The documentation was very familiar. Uh, but in the, in the outside of the Microsoft world or the world that Microsoft is getting into, it could change completely from one place to another. Uh, for instance, you know, like Angular is a natural progression, I think, for somebody in the Microsoft world because TypeScript and the whole MVC, MVVM thinking was baked. Uh, is, TypeScript is, you know, Angular new and MVC was Angular 1X. Uh, but then suddenly you get hit with a React project which literally like you, you know, build everything bit by bit yourself and you use a different way of structuring your application, things like Redux, et cetera. Uh, so it's a completely different way of thinking. Redux is great, by the way. Once you've written 600 lines of plumbing, that console.log looks really nice. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you may not know, but you're stepping right into... Uh, um, well, there, that, that's a... An <laughs> ongoing battle on this show. Yeah. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> like uh, that guy who's like, it's a trap. Like one of those kind of things. I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, I'll step back from that. Then. No, no, you can. You know, oh, no, I, I'm deep in the trap now. Uh, you're uh, in yeah. the trap. Let the jaws close upon you. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know why you pointed out the yellow line, but anyway. Uh, but but actually, you know, I'll just drop a hint at you because uh, you, you probably know about NGRX, which is the Redux plus Re, um, uh, RxJS uh, mashup in Angular, right? You know yes, that. yeah. And so that's been a you know an ongoing topic, but I've been uh, I've been living that life now with uh, the library that uh, John Papa and I added called NGRX Data, and we're mm-hmm. we're we I th- we may have tamed that one particular um, objection of yours, uh, but we'll see. Anyway, uh, I digress. Back to you. Go on. Well, I mean, on the other side, you know, you have things like VS Code, which is a fantastic editor. Uh, and it comes from Microsoft. And, you know, VS Code with TypeScript, with all the IntelliSense, et cetera, mm-hmm. I, I think Microsoft is also bringing a lot of value into this ecosystem. By- I thought you were going to say something bad about VS Code. I was like, whoa. Oh, no, I love VS Hold up, buddy. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, I'm going to restrain myself and not go all fanboy because I switched to VS Code and I love it more every day. VS Code is fabulous. Okay. It really is. In fact, um, you know, whenever I have to fire a Visual Studio, I hate it now because it's so heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Oh, so that's like its predecessor. I didn't ever play with it. I've only ever done. You yeah, just, I've only ever done VS Code. You just uh, you, you should missing. try Visual Studio when you finish downloading it next week. I think it will help you set it up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but it, it has its. It has its. It does. Was it like the same thing, basically? No. Well, think of think of Visual Studio as the Starship Enterprise, and VS Code as that little fighter that comes out of it. Oh, that's such a yeah. great analogy. I mean, it's literally that lightweight. And the, but the thing is, the way the way I like to think of it is that Visual Studio is big and powerful. It comes with all this stuff that makes setting up your project very easy. But you set up the project once, right? right. And then you work with it, and then and then you have to pay that penalty for the next two years that you work on that project. Uh, whereas VS Code, the setup might be more difficult, which is, I think, simplified a lot with things like Angular, CLI, or Yeoman. Uh, but then after that, you have a project template that is unique for your needs, and it works a lot better. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so for instance, like .NET Core, um, you can do .NET Core in Visual Studio or VS Code. Both are valid choices. But I just find myself doing VS Code more because it's just, uh, you know, I can work faster with it. The ID doesn't get in my way. Yep. And they have plugins for everything. So if you're struggling with something, and I think Visual Studio to a certain degree has this too, you know, they have a, a very healthy ecosystem for, yeah. for extensions. But, um, you know, if you need something, it's probably already there. You just need to go and plug it in. Yeah. Like the Angular language service, uh, yep. I, I think it's amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a marvel of engineering, if you'd ask me. You know, that it brings IntelliSense into your HTML templates and all that. It's it's just absolutely fabulous. Yeah. So, so you're finding this flowing back into, you know, as a, as a Microsoft developer, you have, you do have choices of frameworks to, to, to build your um, single page application in. Mm-hmm. So what, what, um, you know, tell us what that landscape looks like to a Windows developer and tell us a bit about how, 
if Angular has been your choice or has been the one you worked with mostly, what what it feels like as a Microsoft developer to work there? I think Angular has worked out very well for me. Uh, and I think people who give it a try, I think it would work out for them. Uh, you know, coming from a pure Microsoft landscape, a lot of people are still doing classic WinForms even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, scale properly on high DPS screens. It's becoming a real challenge. So then people came out with WPF and things like XAML. And XAML has gone through many iterations. You know, you had Silverlight. You had your WPF classic that you can use to write desktop apps. And then you have uh, XAML being used in Xamarin. Um, and I, I just get a feel that I'm you know, far more productive in an HTML-based UI. Uh, and also, you know, let's be realistic. It's easier to find somebody who knows HTML than somebody who knows XAML. Um, mm-hmm. XAML may make you more productive. It may give you pixel-level control. But HTML every single day with CSS3 is making progress by leaps and bounds. So these days, I think especially one of the things that I find really, really cool about Angular is that how well it performs. And you know, once you write an application using Angular, uh, with the future iterations of Angular, and in Angular 6, they just made updating so much easier, uh, that Angular just keeps getting better from a performance perspective. So it is a very uh, you know, valuable thing that I can write the user interface in you know, one ID and frankly the whole application in you know one platform, and I can just sort of repackage it to run on mobile, which is extremely CPU strived, uh, starved. Sorry, uh, or run it as a website, or run it as a desktop application, Electron. Mm-hmm. There's something you can't do with the classic platforms that we've had, and it's not just specific to Microsoft, even outside of Microsoft. I don't think there's anything else that has allowed us to do that so far. What they call write once and run everywhere. I mean, it's been promised before, but I think it's being delivered by Angular. Yep. Yeah, I see. I see a lot of people doing that kind of thing, you know. And I hear I have a React podcast as well, and the conversations are going in the same direction for for that ecosystem, right? right. You have React Native. You've got all of these different things, you know. In Angular, we have Native Script and Ionic and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I completely agree. It just opens up so many opportunities because I don't have to become a Swift developer to get that bit of work done. Indeed. And at least currently, like when you ship to a Mac, uh, you don't have to go through the App Store. You know, you can right. deliver outside of the App Store. Uh, inside the App Store, like an iOS, etc., Apple still has a penchant for, you know, applications that are written using Swift and Objective-C. They still mm-hmm. prefer those. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've tried to get a few apps approved and they reject them a couple of times before they'll accept them. So you, that is still true, unfortunately. But the reality is, you know, like just as me as a developer, I have a challenge of learning all these different languages and platforms. Companies have that same challenge. You know, organizations, they are they yep. have to spend a lot of money mastering all these platforms or hiring people that know all these platforms. So I think it presents a, an ocean of value to them. Well, and when you're saying that, you know, they have to learn to tackle all of these platforms, they have to tackle all these platforms to solve the same problem they already solved on the web. Or right. on mobile, or you know wherever else they already are, and that's the exactly. thing that really is powerful about this is that I build a web app, and yeah, I may have to change up my UI so that it looks nice on mobile. Mm-hmm. All of the logic behind it, all of the reaching back to my APIs, all of the rest of that stuff, it can stay the same because it's all JavaScript, it's all web technology, and it exactly. just works nicely. Exactly, exactly. 
And, and, and I think that is where Angular really shines, that it can package things so tightly and yet give you the tools. So on one side, we have performance. And, and in the, on the other side, with Angular and TypeScript, and you know, TypeScript, Microsoft uh, came up with that, it's giving us the right tools that we can build taller buildings now. Mm-hmm. You know, like in plain JavaScript, no matter how good you are, you know, 5 p.m. on a Friday, your friends are at the bar and you're wondering, you know, what is the int max value that you can work with properly? Will you remember to do the right thing? Probably not, right? And with TypeScript, it keeps you safe and gives you the tools to build these more complicated, taller buildings. So, so I think that is, uh, is very, very, very valuable. So let's say that we've made our point. Angular is awesome. Is something that Microsoft developers should look at. How do they get from, I've been in the Microsoft ecosystem for the last 20 years. Now I'm going to do Angular. What, what, what do they have to do to make that transition? First thing, it is a big mindset change. People that are in the Microsoft space are so used to Visual Studio and they're so used to doing a file new project and have everything set up for them. They need to convince themselves that that approach worked in that ecosystem. That approach does not work today in this modern node-based development ecosystem, modern dev as they call it, right? People look for the F5 button. And I think to some extent, like if you look at Visual Studio for Mac, uh, they have brought F5 on the Visual Studio for Mac. And, and you know, I understand it's that the momentum behind the old thinking and it's not going to go away very quickly. But I think people need to first open themselves up to the idea that there are other ways of doing things. So that's one. Second, I think, is that they need to get familiarized with this node-based development. And I think a lot of us that have been doing Angular or React or so on and so forth for so long, I think we tend to um, you know, devalue the importance of getting started with what package.json means. It's so true. Uh, we forget that the that we walked across the broken glass, the field of broken glass. And we're already across, and now we're inviting all these uh, these other developers to walk across. No, it's not the glass isn't as broken as it was when we first walked across it, but there still is a lot there. That's and, true, and um, they're turning away. Uh, they don't. They're not going to come when F five is working for them. Exactly. And you know, when they say open package.json and start editing this JSON file, uh, they're like, why? I need a, you know, ID in which I can point and click. Why isn't there? And to them, that feels wrong. They think there should be a, you know, Windows form on top of this that allows me to edit that package.json. So that is a mentality that, you know, the IntelliSense and VS Code, I think, helps you out there. and, And, you know, that's a new way of thinking they need to get used to. Uh, yeah. So yes, indeed. Yeah. So for the noobs out there, what does F five do? Uh, F five? You don't know what F five? Alyssa? <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I know what you guys. Yeah, I right? love pressing F five in the morning. It's sort of fun. It's, that's like the first thing you push F five, and then you get your cup of coffee, and the day is beautiful. F five is, is it the, like a restart <laughs> button or something? F yeah. five. No, go ahead, tell them. It's tell the them. equivalent of npm start in the Microsoft world. I don't understand. It's a button for like a terminal command? Yeah, you just hit F5 in Visual Studio and it'll build your project, it'll launch it, and it'll attach the debugger to it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you could do that in Visual Studio Code, but I can't tell you how many people are waiting for that F5 to be enabled before they'll look at Angular, which is silly. (laughs) Just type NPM start. It's okay. 
Oh, now I want to make F5 do Impium start. Like, <laughs> well, you can actually. You can wire up, you know, uh, I think in VS Code, uh, you can walk, well, you can certainly wire any key, so you could turn it into that. Uh, but it, it's it's our shorthand for a complete experience because it goes hand in hand with everything else that he was, mm-hmm. that, that, that uh, so he was talking about. Where you you know the other one you hear is uh, file new all the time, file new project, and suddenly all these templates are waiting for you, and it builds everything, and this is all baked into your IDE mm-hmm. in Visual Studio, and that's not. Um, that's not how our world works out here. We have our CLIs so that we can go, <laughs> you know, ng-new or whatever, React CLI and so forth like that. We can do it on the command line. But the Visual Studio uh, .NET, uh, you know, standard Microsoft developer is expecting to use a GUI uh, IDE for all of these operations that we um, out here are used to doing at the command line. And this is a hurdle. This is a, definitely a cultural hurdle. I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this funny video I saw on YouTube uh, where there's this uh, dog that is trying to get through a glass door, but there is no glass. <laughs> so the dog is just standing there waiting patiently for the door to be opened, and he's, you know, patting on the door, but he won't come through until somebody opens the door. But, you know, I think it's like a, uh, like a mindset we need to sort of get over. And, but, but the advantage is that because you don't have this heavy-duty you know, form that is built on top of package.json, I think that lets package.json iterate very fast. Uh, or, or for that matter, generically speaking. So that's the third thing I think that people in the Microsoft space need to get used to, is that earlier we were quite used to one vendor being Microsoft telling us what to do. And now it is very community-driven. And this is also something that Microsoft is embracing, but a conventional Microsoft developer needs to get used to the idea that new node packages get released every month now. And when you do NPM install, it's the collective knowledge of the rest of the internet that is coming via GitHub on your machine. Yeah, and but don't you get that from like NuGet and stuff? You do, but uh, I think the percentage of your project that relies on NuGet versus, like you know, in a typical project, I would have two, five, 10 NuGet packages. 10 would be pushing mm-hmm. it. But the, the, oh, I got you. It just, you know, the dial is way, way on the other side when it comes to the node based development. And then the other thing is the NuGet packages, of course, is a generic statement, but they don't iterate as fast as NPM based packages. You know, like people like Mm -hmm. Angular, it's a massive framework and new versions of it come out all the time. Uh, So, and, and then, you know, that's, you have to protect yourself from those changes and writing tests and, in the conventional Microsoft ecosystem, yeah, writing tests was a good idea, but you could get away with not writing them. I think in the JavaScript world, you have to write tests; otherwise, it's just not going to be reliable, you know, down the road. Yeah, that makes sense. I've ha- I've had Node projects though that only had ten packages, and it was a really great place to start. Indeed, how many of the packages did they depend on? Yeah, exactly. And how many did I wind up adding because it was easier to pull that in than it was to build it myself? Yeah. You know, so it grows quickly. Yeah. I'm like just starting to learn this, like uh, the the true pains of like dependencies of dependencies. Cause I was updating <laughs> one the other day and I updated it and I was like, cool, we're good to go. Right. And then terminal was like, now there are five more. And I'm like, wait, what? Like it was, <laughs> it was well, like they were, they were growing exponentially right. on me and I was terrified. <laughs> yeah. I, I just remind you of the time that how it was writing an angular project before angular CLI. Mm-hmm. 
right? It, it wasn't easy. Uh, you know, building that uh, project structure and system just and then shipping it and tree shaking all of doing all that yourself was very hard. Yeah, or you'd have three or four different versions of the same dependency library because oh, yes, they, they didn't quite play nicely together. And mm-hmm. so then it was you'd run into namespacing issues. And I want to cry indeed. now, indeed. Yeah, so so that's one thing, and the last thing I'll say that the conventional Microsoft Dev, uh, you know, is a it's just a mindset change. Is they're extremely used to writing C sharp, and I think this may apply to Java developers as well. Uh, that you can you can tell by looking at somebody's code if they came from a C sharp background, because they have a penchant to using inheritance a little little bit too much, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you know they don't use interfaces instead of you know base class. So you can look at a code base, and if somebody's going deep down the inheritance chain, that's a classic telltale sign that this guy came from a C sharp background or perhaps a Java background. Mm-hmm. This is a different way of thinking because it's a different language. You should use it for its strengths. So I think that's also a different way of thinking. Yeah, I I don't want to discourage anybody though. I mean, you don't have to come all the way out here to the wild, wild west, right? You can still use uh, Visual Studio Team Services or TFS. You can still use a lot of the other tools that you're used to to manage your project and to work on your project and build your project. And you know, some of it exists in Azure, some of it exists as Microsoft services, and some of it exists in the infrastructure you already have. Indeed. You know, but when you're thinking about how you build an architecture system, it, it's going to be different from what you're used to. Indeed. I love TFS. And TFS works incredibly well with node-based projects, and it, it works very well with, you know, uh, everywhere else. So I have an Angular app that I wrote uh, called Karma, C-A-R-M-A. It allows you to control your Tesla from your Mac. It's written using Angular, and the way I've built it is that all the code is in TFS. And what TFS gives me is that it gives me like a uh, build environment that's really a Docker image that sits in the cloud. And anytime I check in, it spits out a build for me. So I'm sure it's doable using Bitbucket or GitHub as well. But the fact that you can do all this using a Microsoft platform is pretty amazing. I'm going to pump the brakes just for a minute because I know that a lot of our audience are the more traditional Angular open source folks, and they may not know what TFS or Team Foundation Services or Server is. You want to just explain really quickly what we're talking about there? Absolutely. So TFS, you know, VSTS, it's a hosted service that Microsoft provides. And it basically allows you to manage your whole dev process and team source code, tasks, build processes, running tests automatedly. All of that stuff can be automated through this service in the cloud. And it, uh, even though the name has got Visual Studio in it, you know, VSTS, it's really got nothing to do with Visual Studio anymore. I think they should change the name of it. It works with any platform, and it's very, very capable. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. I've uh, tried it out because you can get a free trial. You just go sign up for free trial. And if you're working on a small enough project, you can continue to use it for free. Absolutely. Up to five users, correct. And it's it's a really nice platform. I've also been playing with GitLab and I kind of get a little more control out of that. So, you know, depending on which end of the thing you want to lean on, um, you know, you you can kind of pick your poison. But... Yeah, it, it it manages your Git repos, it manages your backlog, it manages all of that stuff. It's kind of, and it's all in one service and it all integrates really nicely. So there are a yeah. lot of things to like about Visual Studio Team Services. And, and Team and, Foundation Server is just yeah. a self-hosted version of that. Yeah, and, and one really cool thing with TFS is, uh, or VSTS, is that every repo in VSTS is also exposed as a Git repo. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can have the same repo being used in Visual Studio proper using the older protocols, and the same repo can be used as a Git repo. So this really allows these modern and new uh, versus the old developers to work in the same ecosystem very well. I mean, at this point, it's really like, you know, when somebody asks me, should I pick, pick Amazon or Azure, right? AWS or Azure. The reality is both of them are so good at this point that from a you know needs point of view, both of them will meet your mm-hmm. needs. The difference really comes down to fine print and stuff that you're, it comes down to academic details at this point, really. Like practically speaking, they both meet the needs of 99.99% of the project. Yeah, I find that both user interfaces are complicated, and I like um, Azure's better on some things than AWS's, and AWS is better than Azure's on other things. Indeed. And so I, I just kind of pick and choose based on what's going to cause me the least pain with the UI. Indeed. But Indeed. yeah, you're right. I mean, they they provide a lot of the same stuff. Indeed. Need to create a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. We target Angular 6 and the recent versions with much of the curriculum is suitable back to Angular 2. Or go beyond the three-day class with a consultation or project launch with Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. We can assist your team or launch your project with advanced Angular topics, including scalability, data flow, state management, full stack product design, and more. Contact us for a private class at your location or buy a ticket for public classes in various cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. You want to talk about Microsoft Graph? Yeah. I'm, I'm not very clear on what Microsoft Graph is, so... I don't think anybody is because yeah, I was going to say I, I, it, it's. Uh, it, it, is it new or something? They talk oh, about it a build, but yeah, that... always, always they talk about it. Like, of course, you know what Microsoft Graph is, and it's kind of a uh, it's a big stew pot, isn't it? What is it actually? You know, it, it's sort of funny whenever I watch these Microsoft keynotes. I think they could replace most of the speakers with a machine learning algorithm because they use all these keywords. <laughs> like every year, they sound the same. Like I listened to Satya Nadella talk for like 15 minutes and I'm nodding and it's like good English, right? And 15 uh-huh. minutes later, I read, and he's really good at it. Like 15 minutes later, I realized that he's given me a nice word salad that means nothing. I, I don't know if you guys feel that way. To some degree. I mean, so I, like I said, I was at Build. Um, so of course, I, I went to the keynote in person. I know I laid, I laid in my hotel room and watched <laughs> on my computer. But um for me, I, I watch it because, A, I'm going to be talking to Microsoft folks later on and I want to know, oh, they talked about that in the keynote. I think Satya Nadella, he... How do I put it? Uh, he reminds me a little bit of Steve Jobs without all the flashy stuff. It's a hairstyle, isn't it? And the the other... <laughs> I don't know. Um, but the other thing is, is that they they both would come out and they would their keynotes served the same purpose, right? It was to kind of give you a vision... This is what we're working toward. This is what we want to achieve. And then, and this is what we're unveiling that's a big deal that's going to get us there, right? That, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of the structure of their talks. Yeah. And so his talks are interesting from the standpoint of, here's, here's what we're imagining Microsoft is going to be. And that vision changes every year. Um, but it doesn't move too far off base unless there's something major that sh- shifted in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So those yeah. are helpful. But then a lot of the other keynotes are basically just a montage of, here's what we've made available to you now. Mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, there are all the people on the back end frantically pushing those services yeah, live yeah, during exactly. the keynotes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so talking about Microsoft Graph, uh, you know, the simplest way I can describe this is people as they're moving to the cloud in the Microsoft ecosystem, like they're using Office 365 and down the road Microsoft 365, Azure AD syncing their on-premises AD to the cloud, et cetera. As a result of all of this, they are pushing a lot of information into the cloud. And Microsoft Graph is nothing but, but a huge bunch of REST APIs protected by Azure AD that you can use to tap into all that data and all that functionality. Simple as that. Example, uh, your emails in Office 365 can be read and processed via Microsoft Graph. So imagine the power that adds, like say if you're trying to create a product that reads your email and runs some sort of machine learning algorithm on it to give you, you know, more value. So it's just calling a bunch of REST APIs on Microsoft Graph. So I'm sorry to use that term again, but essentially it's just a bunch of REST APIs protected by Azure AD, and it is a gold mine of value as far as the REST APIs go. Mm-hmm. So does it function as an actual graph? Because I remember um, Facebook released like their Open Graph API, and now they're doing GraphQL and a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. So, so is it an actual graph? Because with yeah. Facebook, again, it was, you know, it was you and then your friends, and so it was an Indeed. actual graph, right? Indeed. Uh, loosely. Uh, it's, it's not quite like they don't have GraphQL, etc. I think the best way to think of it is it is connected to you you know, like slash me and so on and so forth. But then there are a whole bunch of APIs that may not be connected to you. For instance, if you want to write an application that manages external users in your Office 365 tenancy, um, that's got nothing to do with you, but it has mm-hmm. something to do with your tenancy at an admin level. Okay. So really, I think the, thing, the two things you need to know about Graph is that it's just a bunch of REST APIs and it's a gold mine of functionality. It really is. And second, how do you authenticate so you can call those APIs? And the answer to that is Azure AD. As long as you've mastered those two, a whole new world of possibilities opens up to you. For but these are these APIs are all Microsoft. Aren't they mostly Office APIs? No, they're not just Office APIs. Certainly, Office is a big part of it. But the reality is, like uh, things like Azure AD, technically is more than just Office. So all of that functionality is exposed there as well. And that's the other thing. Like when you watch, watch all these keynotes and they say, we introduced this amazing new feature. And I'm like, but I could already build that. You know, so that I think, <laughs> you know, yeah, like if you knew what APIs to call, they're just repackaging their own APIs. For instance, now they have this thing where you upload an image into a doc. Like, okay, so they have the, this Microsoft Stream thing where, uh, you know, you can upload a video there and it'll analyze a video through AI. Uh, and it'll you know turn speech to text, and you can search through the video, and you can say, "Take me to the point where Ward talks about this topic," uh, and search will you know literally take you to that point into the video. <clears throat> now it's available as a package service. You just spend you know three bucks a month per user, and actually five bucks a month because it's premium. Uh, but you know you could build that yourself for the last two years, uh, and, and you know, we should probably talk a little bit about AI and cognitive service and all that as well because. That is like absolutely amazing. And it's an amazing amount of power that I, I just think a lot of companies are not tapping into yet. Yeah, that stuff looks really, really interesting. 
Um, and we've, we've talked our way around some of it at some of the build conferences, but they tend to give those to someone like the, the data science podcast instead of us. So yeah, why don't you dive into that and, and tell us what capabilities are there in Azure for AI sure. and cognitive services? So I'm going to try to bore our listeners with that because the reality is these days you watch any keynote and the execs have lost the ability to make a full sentence without the word AI in it, right? <laughs> it's true, isn't it? It's so, so true. I hope it was at the same time. I'm sure they did the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they did. And I was I actually made a comment about that because I was like, are we using AI for everything now? Because like it was, it was brought up a lot. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I use AI to brush my teeth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you got nice teeth, so there you go. <laughs> so let me let me make it a little bit more real, though. We've been talking for about an hour, and in the last hour, you know, have you seen this thing on the internet where you say what happens in one internet second, right? So one of the things that happens is YouTube gets five hours of content uploaded every second. So if we've been talking for about an hour, in the time that we've been talking and our listeners have been listening, YouTube just got 750 days and nights worth of content uploaded to them. Just think about that. So how many people can YouTube hire to analyze that content? Some of that content may not be fit for little children. Some of them might be uploaded by terrorists. There's a lot of you know uh, responsibility that YouTube is taking. Imagine the number of comments left on that content, and then YouTube has to understand that content and monetize on it. Their bread and butter depends on it, right? Well, yeah. and you're talking about may not be suitable for kids, and I think there are some generally accepted things. But then, what about my views on things versus Alyssa's views on things? And so, you Indeed. know, if Alyssa's kids are watching something and and my kids are watching something, she may be okay with it and I may not, or vice versa. Indeed. And that would be, again, a problem for AI to solve. My point is that with that amount of data and the data that yeah. we're producing, it's just not possible for we to write if-else logic for everything. So put simply, AI is you know where a computer does something that it wasn't explicitly programmed to do. And there are three things that we need for AI to be real. One is algorithms, and we've had those since the 1950s and 60s, but they're improving, but we've had them. Uh, the second thing is lots of data. And these days with you know, amazing stories and sensors everywhere, we finally have lots of data. Mm-hmm. And the third thing you need is lots of compute, which for the very first time in the history of mankind, thanks to the cloud, we have a lot of compute available on demand. So I think it's really, uh, it's really going to... Uh, you know, open a whole new world of possibilities to us. Like, let me, so let me give you just one other example. You have a digital camera, right, in your phone, or even before mm-hmm. that. When cool. you pick up that camera, right. So when you pick up that camera and aim it at your friend's face to take a picture, notice that the contrast and the light changes automatically, mm-hmm. right? The way it does that it, is that it is, it is able to recognize your face and the face is in the picture, and it automatically adjusts the focus and the contrast and the brightness accordingly. And we've had this in digital cameras since 2005. This is AI, because it's built on face recognition. That There was a white paper that came out of, I think it's Harvard, MIT. I'll send you the link. But basically, that they're able to recognize faces, human faces, with very little processing power. 
And they've been using this in cameras, been in your pocket all the, while, all the while. And, you know, this is AI in action. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's, sense. Pretty, yeah it's pretty amazing. And so let's say as an Angular developer, I know I can call REST APIs, right? So one of the things that people think of AI and they think, well, it's science fiction. You know, computers are going to be our overlords and, and the, the meeting demo that they showed at Build. And in reality, it's like... Uh, you know, somebody wishes to share a chat message and they kill the whole meeting, you know, happens. Uh, so uh, practically speaking, as an Angular developer, I know I can call REST APIs. And there is something called as cognitive services and Google and AWS and Microsoft. All three of them have their flavors of cognitive services. Mm-hmm. And using just, if you can call a REST API, you can start taking advantage of those. So let me give you an example as of what you could build with just just being able to call REST APIs. You don't have to be a data scientist for this. You could build, let's say, a robot where you walk into a store and it'll recognize you. You can do this. with If you can call a REST API, you can build this. And then you can walk up to the robot or the robot walks up to you and you can talk with the robot in like 100 plus languages. As soon as you talk to the robot, it understands your language. It pulls up your profile. It can do a sentiment analysis on what you said. And accordingly, it can lead you to, you know, if you're mad, it can lead you to a human. If you're happy, it can give you a discount and so on and so forth. Something like this, you could build it in a matter of, you know, a day or two. In a real world application, you can you can build this by just calling cognitive services. And it's possible on all three platforms. That's awesome. Yeah, they've talked a bit about like building chatbots and things like that. That looks very cool. I mean, chatbot essentially is just a REST service behind the scenes. Like yeah. it's like when I type in a text, you know, I'm, I, I'm chatting or Siri, whatever, there's text to speech and the or speech to text, and that text goes to a REST service. Natural language, a natural language algorithm kicks in. But again, all of this is possible if you can call a REST API. You can build all this. So I think I think like Angular developers are for that matter any developer, if they are. Uh, you know, if they know how to call a REST API, they have this power in their hands and they should really look at this stuff. That's it. I'm going to threaten to replace my kids with cognitive services. <laughs> they wouldn't be as cute, but... <laughs> they talk back less, I think. They talk back less. That is true. Depending so do, you, on what... do you have an Angular demo that calls into any of these things? Just curiously, something that somebody can look at? Hmm, I don't have an... Angular demo, but I have a node-based demo. Uh, there are uh, I have a couple of uh, GitHub repos that I'll send you the links for, and there are Code Magazine articles for both of these as well. One of them allows you to do person recognition, so like you build a library of faces of people. Uh, let's say I've got three pictures of Ward, three pictures of you, Charles, three pictures of Alyssa, and then I build this library of people, and then I show a computer the computer a picture that it has never seen before. And it'll be able to recognize that, hey, this is war, for instance. And you can do this with faces, or you can do this with audio. So like I need 30 seconds of audio to register a person. And and you'd be shocked to see how easy this is to build and use. And I'll send you those two links. And it's written in TypeScript and .NET Core. Uh, I think converting it to Angular is just slapping a user interface in front of it. It'd be pretty much very trivial. Well, let's put this in the show notes for sure. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, and then there's this cognitive services, we're just calling REST APIs. And then you can go one level above that where you want to do something that cognitive services doesn't let you do. For instance, a very custom scenario. Uh, like, you know, you were talking about uh, my views would be different. And let's say it doesn't give you that ability out of the box. And for that, you can, you know, use the various machine learning facilities that you know, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft offer uh, and you know, sort of build these models in the cloud where you need a lot of compute power and then export it as a model to run on a little Raspberry Pi, for instance. Mm-hmm. So as, as an example, uh, for instance, let's say that you've got a bunch of temperature and humidity sensors in a factory and there's a million-dollar machine about to go bad because temperature is spiking and this is a pattern we've seen before. Uh, so it's like, so they, let's say I'm just making this up. It'll say humidity is low, but temperature is high. So the machine's going to catch on fire. So you don't want to have to make a call to the internet, you know, to find out that this $1 million machine is going to go bad, especially if your internet connection is slow or it's down. What if this is on a ship, for instance, and you have no connectivity? Uh, so you have the ability to export this model as a simple Docker image and run it on any node-based environment. Uh, you know, little Linux VM running on a, on a Raspberry Pi, for instance, could do this. And I, and I think all this is very achievable. This is not... It's not difficult. I think a lot of people look at AI and they think that it's it's the work of you know work of PhDs with thick glasses. I I I don't think it's very easy. Well, they they yeah. have courses on this on Udemy and Linda and Pluralsight. You know, for for regular schmo developers like me. So they do. It it it's it, you know what I think it is is like I'm now convinced that it's easy uh, to invoke these services. What I seem to lack is the imagination to use them for something <laughs> other than detecting whether it's a cat or my mm. cat or it's Alyssa <laughs> walking across the screen. Okay, uh, I think that's and, the and, and, you know, that, looking at because you have you have so many options, right? Like, <laughs> well, I, I need the imagination to apply it to a problem that I actually have. Okay, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Anywhere where you have loads of unstructured data and you want to gain analytics out of it, like intelligence out of it, is a good example of this. For example, uh, let's say that a company has got a huge bunch of internal documentation and they've used multiple systems over years, and it's hard to find any information. Uh, you know, you could just index all of that stuff with AI uh, and just turn that into a Q&A bot. It takes five minutes to do that using the Azure Q&A maker. Uh, this is a perfect example of what could be done. And they can ask questions in like natural English. So I can, uh, okay, now you have a library of podcasts, right? A mm-hmm. um, lot of good information in those podcasts, but it's all spoken text, right? Yep. We could do speech to text on that, turn into a Q&A maker, and then just you can ask a question in 100 plus languages. You detect the language, send it to the text repo, and I'll answer the question in plain English. Or whatever. You know, I think a great QA like bot would be would be like for everything that you can use because you have all of this knowledge of like oh yeah there's this bot you can use or like this API that you can use and I feel like it'd be awesome to have. Is there like a resource that you have that's like a hundred things to do with AI or something that I don't know has at least one main resource that has a list of things like this or not really? Uh, I don't, but. It's it's just you know like the more you look around yourself, but you, the more applications of AI you come across with. But I think the yeah. one sentence I'd leave, leave you with, uh, leave you with on that is wherever you have loads of unstructured data that you're trying to make sense of, is, a, is an excellent example for AI. 
Mm. And then just think of where you have a lot of unstructured data. Like we're listening to conversations all day long. We can't follow up with every single conversation. That's a lot of unstructured data. All the things we see through the day, like the self-driving cars, they're seeing things. That's a lot of unstructured data. Try and make sense of that. That's a good example of AI. Uh, Twitter has got like, okay, here's a simple example. Do you guys use Slack? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I use. I mean, define use. So, like, I'm on (laughs) over 20 different Slack channels, and like, I can't even keep up. (laughs) Okay, so I'm working with an organization that uses Slack a lot, and then the same challenge you said, I can't keep up. One of the challenges I run into is notification hell, right? Especially through Slack, there's so many channels. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody could write a bot that understands my patterns? and then looks at the channels that I see and notifies me intelligently about the things it thinks I care about. And the same thing could be applied for iOS notifications or you know, on your phone, et cetera. Yeah, that would be nice. Cause I know in Slack, you can say, hey, notify me when these keywords are mentioned. Yeah. So like one of my keywords in all of them is like Angular, but like There's in so the much. Angular Slack, you know, it's like, eh, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would be really cool actually. <laughs> and then the algorithm improves over time. Like you, what you can do, so with AI, you have to view problem in two spaces. One, which needs human input. So you're training the computer. And second is unstructured. So an example of unstructured is like the four of us are talking and the computer separates our voices. So you have a cluster of data and you know, makes clusters out of it without human input. But the second example, which would be great for Slack, is where you as the human educate the computer over time saying, this notification was useful, this was not useful. And over time, the computer learns and then you know, it keeps getting better with time. So that would be the example of uh, you know, what they call a supervised learning. Yeah, AI is awesome. I mean, this is a field I'm like really, really stoked about. Well, there's so much going on out there too right now, so. Always. I think it's always been there, but the internet has brought it right in our faces. Yep. Yeah, it's always been there. Very cool. Well, um, I'm going to push us to picks. I know some of us have some time limitations that we need to attend to. So um, before I do that, you mentioned uh, Code Magazine. You do some writing there. Um, I don't know if you have blog posts or something else that people can look at. And then just your Twitter and GitHub as well, so people can see what you're working on. Sure. So my site is winsmarts.com. That's with a plural S at the end. Uh, so anything I learn I, or anything I find useful, it's sort of my second brain, so I'll put it out there. Uh, other than that, I mean, just follow me on Twitter um, or, or GitHub, github.com slash Malik Sahil. Um, or, or I guess Twitter is a good way to follow on you know whatever I'm up to. And I think generally speaking, topics-wise, You'll see me tweeting a lot about AI, uh, cognitive services, node-based dev, Angular, certainly, uh, and a lot to do with security lately. So those are the things that I'll be talking about a lot. Speaking of security, that is a great application of AI. You know, like the security is a chicken and egg problem. Like, you know, you come up with a virus and they come up with a break for it. So with AI, you can stay ahead of that race. It's like, what came first, chicken or egg? Mm -hmm. Don't care. Right. This kind of activity. Oh, I know the chicken. Chicken came first. That's that's it's done. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd have to sit on the egg, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I would I, I, I would like to see that. Yeah, I know you would. You you are <laughs> just terrible. Not, not if you write an AI program to sit on the egg though. Oh yeah. There you go. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android. And all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now, and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. So one of the things, the other thing that I'm passionate about is our living on the planet with a minimum impact. And one of the, one of the things I'm stoked about uh, is electric bicycles. Ah, I'm Those are awesome. Have you tried one? I rode one across uh, Switzerland with my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could go on about how um, how wonderful they are. Um, but you go ahead. You go ahead and start. I mean, you can go 30, 40 miles on them. And I think it's a reasonable alternative to commute these days. If you have a bike trail going to wherever you need to go to, uh, you know, 30, 40 miles on, on these bikes is very doable. And, and, you know, they are good for the environment. They're going to yield less congestion. Uh, and they get you out in the fresh air. So I, I think they're awesome. And that's one of the things I'm really, really stoked about. Well, and you can also tell your neighbors, right? It, in your most condescending tones, well, I went for a 50-mile bike ride yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of the things, these e-bikes are so expensive. And, you know, like a, nobody's going to steal the Tesla because, you know, you can't put it in your backpack. Plus, it's got GPS in it. But a bike, you can just put on your shoulder and, you know, walk away. So that's one concern, uh, but they actually make bikes that don't look like e-bikes, like this one called Van Move. It doesn't look like an e-bike unless you pay close attention to it, but it still looks like a nice bike. And, you know, I'd be worried if somebody just, you know, walked away with it, for instance. Cool. Alyssa, do you have some picks for us? Uh, so I saw Deadpool 2. That one was pretty funny, but not for kids. Uh, <laughs> you know, just in case you're like, I didn't oh, see yeah. the first Deadpool, and this is a Marvel movie, so I'm going to ring my eight-year-old. I'd yeah. obviously know. Did an AI um, tell you that, or did you figure it out <laughs> on your own? Uh, well, okay, so I am learning from you more and more what's appropriate. <laughs> uh, I think the other thing... Okay, so Solo, super pumped about seeing this Thursday. And um, non-movie-related, I've been talking a lot with Mike from the CLI team about the CLI 6 stuff lately, and it's super exciting, really useful and helpful. And if you need help updating your app, head to update.angular.io for some guidance. I I found that nifty little guide and thought, hey, people should use this. So yeah. Have you you upgraded to 6 yet? I think in two projects. Yes, two. So there was a moment when I messaged Mike and I was like, 
this is what my terminal is telling me. What did I do wrong? And he's like, oh, that's a CLI bug. And I was like, oh, thank God. Because I was <laughs> working on it for like two hours trying to fix it. So, um, but I know I've heard that you should be on CLI 6.0.3, not two. There was something weird with that one. So yeah, it was like only alive for like four hours. But uh, yeah, I've updated, I think only two apps though. What about you, Ward? Have you? Yeah, no, I've, I've fully uh, migrated uh, everything I'm working with. Uh, noise yeah and moved off i don't use the rxjs compat either uh i did the bullet and you know oh away. you don't have to use it i don't know i thought it was like one of those you have to if you're going to use a library another library that hasn't upgraded but um i just won't use any library that hasn't upgraded um i see okay okay <laughs> not everybody can make that decision <laughs> You seem a little uppity there, Ward. Exactly. That's yeah. it. It's my way or out of here. Uh, I'm an operator snob. I'm an operator snob. Um, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so I just, uh, I'm curious about how people are, are doing with that. Uh, and so, because uh, it's the, this is a move to, uh, the, the move to six is not like the move from, two to three to four to five. This one is serious. This one takes a little bit of work and they've done right. a lot in terms of writing the. Oh, I the see. I thought you were including the move from one to two in that list. No, 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 no. <laughs> one to two is like, that's crazy town. But, but, uh, but, you know, once you got into uh, what was angular two, um, the migrations from the uh, to from one version to the next have been pretty straightforward. They haven't been that dramatic. But this one, I thought, required um, considerable um, attention. There's there's some real breaking. Yeah, and that was something that we actually talked about on the other podcast that I do um, because I was I was kind of surprised whenever I went to update and like in my mind it was just literally use the CLI command and I would be good to go. And yep. so whenever I went and I saw that like the guy or the docs were put like like pointing into the guide, I was like, but why must I be guided? Like, so I was totally naive about, um, but, uh, but on the bright side, I think this is lining us up for a much easier six to seven, seven to eight, so on and so forth. So yeah. Yeah. No, there's no question. It's, so yeah, that's all my picks. What about you, Ward? Anything? anything I'm, pickless. I'm pickless today. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm, uh, I've certainly enjoyed our conversation, and this AI thing is one of those scary things that I really I want to stop what I'm doing and go jump into that. That, um, and I don't know how to stop what I'm doing. Um, but if I could stop what I'm doing, I would be jumping right in there, and science done nothing but make me feel more that, that that's true. Um, so, um, I I got no picks. Keep going. It's all good. Um, I keep looking at this stuff and I feel like the areas that we're really going to see the most growth in and and are going to start really impacting us more than they already do. I think AI is definitely one of them, AI deep learning. Um, And just the ability that we'll have to, I don't know if understand is the right word, but we can feed all of the data that we gather into it and have it give us some reasonable conclusions that we can then go learn about our world with. Um, tied to that is um, sensors, you know, and Sahil mentioned that a, a bit as well, you know, that we have all these systems that are gathering all this data. 
And I think that's going to become more and more of a thing. Um, so IoT, I think, is also going to become much more of an integrated part of our lives. And we're also going to see it on the other end of things with actuators or things that make, other, make things happen. You know? And so we see this in like smart homes and stuff. But I think, I think we're going to wind up well beyond that as well. And then it'll be interesting because I also see some tie-ins then with augmented reality and virtual reality and how that will eventually through the cloud impact all of this other stuff, as well as gather information about how we interact with a virtual world that in, in ways that we can't with our physical world. And so it, there are just so many interesting directions that this can all go. And I don't think we really understand the impact of the technologies that we're pioneering right now. Yeah. Actually, of all the things you mentioned, uh, they're all are very valid. But I think one of one of those is especially uh, you know interesting, which is IoT. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, people, you know, have you ever heard this phrase? Say, you sit on a computer all day, but I go outside and do real work, and ninety percent of the work happens away from a computer keyboard. Uh, and I think with the IoT, there is twofold. Number one, it takes computers to where the work is being done. Yeah. And the second thing is going to produce loads of data that we can finally do something with because we have the cloud. And, and you know, with the AI and the cloud um, matched with IoT, it's really going to put us at a different level in five years, I think. Yeah, I, I kind of see this as, just to give an example, we essentially hook the IoT into like a, a backhoe or a, you know, a, you know, some heavy machinery and we say, we need a hole that's this wide and this deep. Mm-hmm. and it runs the machine and just does it. But as it does it, it also analyzes how rocky is the soil, what kind of rocks do I see, what kinds of you know, spectral analysis am I getting on the soil, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And as it works it all out, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to upload all that geological information to some database. It's going to report that the work's done, and then we're going to have yeah. some other IoT device come in and actually pour a foundation for a house or whatever. Like, speaking of another application of AI, last week I was in Panama. And other than a big bit by the bugs there, uh, but you know, whenever a ship goes through the Panama Canal, they, they you have to pay a toll, you have to pay money. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges they're running into is with the changing weather patterns, it's raining lesser. So anytime they open the locks to let a ship in or out, they lose fresh water in the lake in the middle. Right. So a number of ships, you know, they get 160 inches of rain a year, and it rains less. You know, it, it's basically there's less number of ships that can go through. So imagine, given the weather patterns and the number of ships passing through, they could build an AI model that would dynamically change the prices of the ships going through. You know, that would be a model that would produce a better return for them. And these are mm-hmm. just hundreds of examples where, uh, you know, we have been doing these things manually, but it's just adding a computer to it with AI, and it just takes you to the next level. Yeah, but we also have the cloud, and so the ship could report that it's headed toward the Panama Canal. And then they could also have AI basically try different traffic patterns to minimize water loss. I mean, there are so many directions. Yes. that could. I mean, it's it's really interesting where yeah. it could wind up. But Like you can have two small ships going together, for instance. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it, they, there's a ton of possibility here and completely take us to the next level. And I think we haven't even scratched the surface of it as a civilization. Yeah. I agree. Completely agree. All right. Well, um, I don't know if I actually did any picks, but I think we're kind of at the end of our time. So I'm just going to um, say thanks to Sahil for coming and to our panel for having such a great conversation. And we'll wrap this one up and we will come back next week. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.